Gridbox Media Programming is brought to you by. Do you wish you knew the saints better? Overwhelmed with all the events in Catholic history and just wish you could tie it all together? It's tough work, and even scientists have determined that it takes approximately 400 repetitions to create a new synapse in the brain. Unless it is done with play, in which case it takes between 10 and 20 repetitions. Introducing Saint Cards, where the facts about saints and history are presented in fun and engaging games for ages 4 to 104. Check out Saint Cards at saintcards.com and begin the fun for your family, school, and parish today. Introducing the redesigned CatholicSingles.com, featuring new ways that put the spotlight on the person and their faith, not just a profile picture. For the past 20 years, faithful Catholics have used CatholicSingles.com, and the reimagined CatholicSingles.com website is ready to help single Catholics take the next step in sharing meaningful relationships with other faithful Catholics. Remember, CatholicSingles.com, for faith, fellowship, and love. What are you doing this Lent? The St. Paul Center is streaming their newest video Bible study for free starting Ash Wednesday. Based on Scott Hahn's renowned covenantal theology, this is a study no one should miss. Invite your friends, Catholic or not. Don't miss your chance to see this premium study for free. Go to stpaulcenter.com to sign up today. of the Reformation by Hilaire Belloc. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. Now toward the second half of the book, Belloc takes us through the characters of the 17th century, a time when the wars of religion had begun to die down and it was clear that neither side, Protestant or Catholic, was going to win, but in fact Europe would be divided into Protestant and Catholic. The person who is the key and instrumental player in all of this in England is Oliver Cromwell. Oliver Cromwell. We have seen in the case of Laud, one of the effects of 17th century struggle upon the Protestant side, Laud was the type of leader of those English Protestants who tried to reconcile their departure from Catholic unity and some lurking sympathy with a memory of the Catholic past. In the same Protestant camp, there was present an opposite, growing force of a much more active kind, what was soon called Puritanism. Of this force, Oliver Cromwell is the representative type. We have seen how the character of Protestantism as it grew took on substance and developed a particular spirit summed up in the teaching of John Calvin. It is his main doctrines, his attitude towards the universe, which has given tone and color to the whole Protestant movement. And though men are affected by the Calvinistic spirit in many different degrees, from those who feel it vividly and profoundly, to those who only feel it vaguely and superficially, wherever the Protestant type of mind exists, it is Calvinistic. Calvin had accepted from earlier men the doctrine of salvation by faith alone, the idea that good works are of themselves no profit to salvation. But though he was not the first to maintain this, it was he who affirmed it most firmly and with the clearest definition, and he who made it triumph. Equal in importance is Calvin's second point, summed up in the word predestination, 
Not only does the Creator know who will be saved and who will be damned, not only must He have known it from all eternity, but also He must have willed it. Calvin admitted only one will in the universe, and by that will, not by man's own will, still less by man's own acts, would He be saved or damned. The third essential in the Calvinist spirit is the doctrine of conversion. The individual knows by a personal revelation, vouchsafed to him privately at a particular moment, that he is one of God's elect, predestined to glory and beatitude, while around them are the great mass of those whom God has condemned to eternal misery. To all this, add Calvin's doctrine of church government— Calvin, being a Frenchman, and therefore alive with the power and desire to organize a complete system, determined to erect against the universal Catholic Church a new church, which should be the guardian of those truths whereof he was the prophet. That church of Calvin's we know now today as Presbyterianism. It is important to remember that of those who came under the influence of the Calvinist spirit, only a certain proportion adhered to its full scheme. Many, including Cromwell himself, and many Protestants around the world today, are sharply opposed to the idea of a strictly disciplined, uniform religious organization for the protection and propagation of a new religion. They believe that since private judgment is the essence of Protestantism, each congregation, and indeed each individual, must be left free to believe and affirm whatever it chooses. Cromwell himself was an excellent example of this. He actually disliked the idea of a strict establishment Presbyterian church. He fought it, not only with arguments, but with armies. His own particular group called themselves independents in order to emphasize their attitude. And they were independent from all. Yet, although he thus opposed organized church, no one was more thoroughgoing in his Calvinist philosophy than Cromwell. No one went through a more violent personal conversion. No one was more eager to assert the indefectibility of the saints. That is, the Calvinist doctrine of eternal security, that those who had once felt conversion were ever after secure of salvation and could not lose grace. No one was more permeated with that spirit of prostration before the omnipotence and majesty of God than Cromwell. No one was filled with a more violent zeal against the reprobate. No one in action was more ruthless against the enemies of this new religion. The way in which Cromwell was typical of the whole Calvinist business is nowhere better seen than in his attitude towards the old religion, which this new religion had set out to kill, that is, his attitude towards Catholicism. Catholicism was for him the very spirit of evil, to destroy which, from off the face of the earth, seemed to him the highest of the duties lying to his hand, in so far as he could fulfill it. And his intense fanaticism on this point appears especially in his treatment of Ireland. For the rest, and in general, Cromwell was the typical figure of what we call Puritanism. Puritanism is a particular form and degree of Protestantism which has specially flourished in England, Scotland, and Wales, but of which there were side areas throughout the Protestant world, notably in Scandinavia and in Holland. I should add here that Puritanism, of course, is the version of Protestantism which was held by the Founding Fathers in the United States, and the vast majority of Protestant evangelical Christians in America today 
are the direct descendants of Puritanism uh, in their understanding and basically Calvinist in their theology. To be a Puritan is almost exactly the same as to be what the old world used to call a Manichean. The Puritan and the Manichae have the same attitude towards the universe. Their creeds work out to the same moral and social practice. But there is one doctrinal difference between the heretics, for while the Manichae believes in an evil principle which works side by side with and is equal to the principle of good in the universe, the Puritan, proceeding from Calvin, and therefore only admitting one will in the universe, makes both evil and good combine in the same awful God, who permits, and in a sense, wills, and even makes happen, evil, and particularly the sufferings of man. There is then this difference in doctrine between the two. The old heresy, Manichaeism, which continually reappears throughout the earlier Christian centuries, and the new heresy of the 16th century. But in practice, the effects of the two are just the same, and Puritanism made of the society which it affected very much what the Albigensians made of their society in the 12th and 13th centuries, and the Bulgarian heretics made of theirs in an earlier time still. The sentiment, rather than the conviction that the material world is evil, and therefore that all sensual joy is in essence evil, lies at the root of Puritanism. Joy in the arts, delight in beauty, and the rest of it, are the Puritan's object of hatred. He sees them all as rivals to the majesty of God and obstacles which deflect and detract from the pure worship of the divine majesty. The accidents by which Oliver Cromwell became the typical figure of English Protestantism in its extreme and puritanical form were these. First, he was a cadet of one of those millionaire families who had gained their enormous wealth out of the wreck of the monasteries during the period of the Reformation. His father, of whom he was the only surviving son, was himself the only son of the enormously wealthy Sir Henry Cromwell. And Henry was the son of Richard Cromwell, the nephew of Thomas Cromwell, the man who dissolved the monasteries under Henry VIII. Richard Cromwell's real name was Richard Williams. He was nephew to Thomas Cromwell because his mother had been Thomas Cromwell's sister, his mother having married a tavern keeper in Putney near London whose name was Williams. Richard took on his important relative's name, but both he and those who succeeded him had to use the name Williams for legal reasons, and when his great-grandson Oliver lay in state, the title Oliver Cromwell Elias Williams was embroidered on the half-royal hangings which draped his bed. The fact that Oliver belonged to one of those millionaire families recently founded on the loot of religious endowments stolen under Henry VIII is highly characteristic of the whole time. The House of Commons, to which he was returned as a young man, was composed almost entirely of rich people like himself, great landowners and their relatives, with here and there a prominent lawyer, or perhaps exceptionally, a prominent merchant. The English House of Commons was in those days a body only called together as a rule for brief periods. It was always summoned on the accession of a monarch, and whenever there was important and solemn lawmaking to be done, it was summoned to confirm the king's will and to subscribe to what he and his council and the great lords had decided. The crown had become so poor in Cromwell's time that government could not be carried on without special voluntary grants by the owners of property, and for making these grants, there was no one to ask but the House of Commons. 
So it took advantage of its position to attack the powers of the king, and the quarrel ultimately ended in a civil war. But even those of the richer classes who were reluctant to attack the crown physically were nearly all at heart opposed to the old claims of the crown and government, and they nearly all wanted at heart to supplant government by a king, whose duty and function it was to protect the poor against the rich, the weak against the strong. They desired to supplant him and take over the government themselves, and that, in effect, is what they did. They won their war, they put the king to death, and among them was the amateur soldier who so rapidly became the best professional soldier of his time, Oliver Cromwell. He had a genius for forming and leading cavalry. No one suspected it, least of all himself, until the opportunity came which made it manifest. Cromwell was already in his forty-third year when the war broke out. He had barely entered his forty-fifth year when it was clear he would become the principal military figure. He was installed the head of the victorious army, and by the time that he was forty-eight, and in his fiftieth year, it was he who plotted for and achieved the death of King Charles I. He proceeded to the conquest of Ireland, a task which he accomplished with horrible cruelty, and as a result of which he dispossessed nineteen-twentieth of the Irish nation, confiscating their land wholesale. He intended to destroy the Catholic Church altogether in that country. He thought he had achieved it, but there he was mistaken. The Scottish Presbyterians had fought as allies of the parliamentary rebels during the Civil War, but the Scottish people had a strong feeling in favor of the Stuart dynasty, which was itself Scottish in origin. You might remember that Charles I, who was fighting against Oliver Cromwell, was the son of James I, who was the son, of course, of Mary, Queen of Scots, and that's why the Scottish had an allegiance to the king. The Scots tried to make the dead king's son take the place of his father, and this gave Cromwell the opportunity for conquering Scotland as he had conquered Ireland. He died the complete master through his military machine of the three kingdoms and the possessor for the moment of the strongest military force in Europe. All that political experiment of an English military republic under a protector was ephemeral. It was bound to break down, and did so within two years of Cromwell's death. He died on the 3rd of September, 1658, and the dead king's son, young Charles, returned and was crowned as Charles II in the spring of 1660. Nevertheless, that for which Cromwell stood had in effect conquered. Those who retained Catholic principles and inclinations in England were still very numerous. When he died, there were still more than a quarter of the population. In Ireland, in spite of massacre and wholesale robbery, the great Catholic mass stood firm. And there, at least, seven-eighths of the people retained their religion in spite of the conquest. But the Civil War had completed, both in Britain and in Ireland, that long process of Catholic impoverishment and Protestant enrichment, which had begun with the dissolution of the monasteries more than a hundred years before, and had continued with the Irish confiscations under Elizabeth, and completed with the enormous fines levied upon all those landowners in England who stood out boldly and openly proclaimed themselves to be Catholic. Further, the victory of those for whom Cromwell stood, and of whom he was the most conspicuous leader, was the virtual end of the monarchy. Although kingship had come back amid universal rejoicing, before young Charles had been crowned at Westminster, the great landowners and the great merchants, acting through the House of Commons and the House of Lords which they formed, took over the government in England, and have retained it ever since.' 
Further, after that episode, there could be no question of the Catholic faith returning in any strength. It might have survived in a large fraction of the people, but it could never again mold the general spirit of England. Oliver Cromwell, therefore, is not only the chief Puritan figure at the decisive moment of the 17th century, when the Protestant and Catholics separated finally and agreed to call it a drawn battle. He is also the figure who marks the turning point in the transformation of England from a Catholic to a Protestant country. The process was not completed under him. Catholicism largely survived in England until it received its final death blow there in 1688. But by the time of his death, the Protestant character of England as a whole was firmly fixed. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. Thank you for listening to this episode of Characters of the Reformation. I invite you to go over to my blog, dwightlongenecker.com, to read my blog posts and also to follow the rest of my podcasts. For Lent this year, I'm recording the entire Gargoyle Code book, which is one of my books for Lent, taking the voices of the various demons and having fun while doing it, but I encourage you to go there and follow the Gargoyle Code for your book for Lent in podcast form. Thank you again for listening. Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com. CMF Curo is the country's first Catholic healthcare ministry to provide an affordable health sharing solution rooted in Catholic teaching and community. Learn more at MyCatholicHealthCare.com slash podcast. That's MyCatholicHealthCare.com slash podcast.